This one is constructed with American cherry wood. Cherry, huh? Now, I have just one question. No, the wood does not taste like cherry. You cannot eat it. I was not going to eat it, Carpenter Ron. I was going to lick it. Hello, makers. Welcome to our studio, a branch of the Making Conversation podcast, where we chat all about making, the app and the act. I'm Jen, head of marketing here at Making, and my making app username is Knit Pearl. Today's guest has been on my list of people to bring onto the podcast for a while now, and then was pushed to the very top by a very specific request from one of our amazing Bright Collective members, Megan. A bit ago, I asked our Bright Collective community if they had any topics that they would like to hear covered here on the podcast. And the response was, we want to hear about more types of craft than just fiber art. And then specifically, woodworking. And even more specifically, Terry was mentioned. So I went to my list, moved Terry to the top, and now here we are. Hello, Terry. Welcome. Hello. I'm flattered. I'm blushing. This is incredible. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I know that you're listening to this, but I can confirm the blushing is happening. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's a really nice boost. Of course. Yes. Our community is amazing at supporting each other, but I just... I was like, I'm going to make that happen. And I wanted to make it happen regardless. So here we are. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I, I love the community. I've listened to several episodes of the podcast in excitement for doing this today. So yeah, let's go. My name is Terry Streetman. My pronouns are he and him. My making app username is at Peregrine Woodshop. I am a woodworker out of Columbus, Ohio, and excited to talk with you today about what I do. If you haven't guessed, we're going to talk about woodworking. Specifically, Terry's journey with woodworking, creating his business, etc. But also, if you know Terry at all, you know it is very important for Terry to be loud about his values as a business and supporting organizations that align with that. And we can definitely relate. (laughs) So we'll chat a little bit about why that's important. When you run a business, a few organizations that are specifically important to Terry and then some tips on how to choose organizations to support as a business or even just as an individual. Okay, so as somebody who until working for making did not really know anyone who is an actual woodworker, (laughs) but was somebody who really loved the show Parks and Rec and still do. I still do. Let's be real. Who doesn't? I love Parks and Rec so much. To the point where I got a, a friend tattoo uh, with my bestie awesome. Stacia. <laughs> that's fantastic. Of Ron Swanson's will. Yes. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> so Leslie and I just finished putting together our will, and she wants you to be the witness. You mind signing it? That's your will? You need that many pages to say give my stuff to my wife? It's a complicated legal document. Doesn't have to be. I've had the same will since I was eight years old. Upon my death, all of my belongings shall transfer to the man or animal who has killed me. What are these weird symbols? The man who kills me will know. That's very good. That's (laughs) iconic. So iconic. If you've never seen Parks and Rec, you need to immediately remedy that. Add it to your next binging list. It is the perfect show to watch and craft with. Ron Swanson is one of the characters on Parks and Rec, if you are unaware. Ron Swanson is played by Nick Offerman, who is not only a top-notch actor, author, etc., 
but is also a woodworker in real life. Mm -hmm. So Ron Swanson on the show is a woodworker and also Nick Offerman in real life, woodworker. So I figured we could start out with a few of the Ron Swanson, Nick Offerman woodworking facts that I found on the interwebs. (laughs) I can't wait. Number one, the wood shop that Ron uses in Parks and Rec is Nick Offerman's actual wood shop. Before the show started, the writers learned of Nick's woodworking skills, visited his shop where they decided to include woodworker as one of Ron's many skills himself. Number two, Ron Swanson created many things during the seven seasons of Parks and Rec. This included a harp to prove to Leslie that people can do impressive things after drinking seven glasses of whiskey. (laughs) That is impressive. Oh, that's it's a it's in in my humble opinion, that's a little excessive. However, yeah, I would not recommend that. I'm sure you could do a whole podcast episode on how to be safe while woodworking, and that would be on the not-to-do list. (laughs) Ron Swanson also made a canoe that was a thank-you gift for Mark Brendanowitz because Mark helped get his wood shop up to code. That is an episode I think about all the time in my own wood shop. Ron Swanson made a picture frame for Leslie Nope made out of a door frame of her best friend's house in Pawnee. That's very sweet. That was very sweet. And in real life, Nick Offerman took reclaimed wood from the set after the show ended and created wooden paddles for members of the cast. That is very nice. I like that a lot. I know. And even though it isn't woodworking, I do want to give a shout out to the fact that Ron Swanson made the rings for Ben and Leslie's wedding Mm -hmm. because that was a tearjerker moment and... He's just, I'm going to pull this sconce out of the wall and go <laughs> make rings. It's incredible. That's the kind of stuff that I aspire to. Just, I'm going to make this thing. Do I know how? Maybe, but I'm going to make it. <laughs> yeah. Ron Swanson made his first chair when he was five years old. <laughs> wow. I could not find what Nick Offerman's first like woodworking mm. piece was, though. I did look for that. I could not find it. So, Nick Offerman, if you're listening, please reach out to HQ at makingco.com and let us know what the first thing was that you made while woodworking. Also, join the making app and you can be a guest on this podcast. Just send us a note. Perfect. That's gonna work. <laughs> I can't wait for that episode. It will. Oh my gosh. It's I'm this is manifestation right. at its finest right now. Make it happen. <laughs> And finally, Nick Offerman's favorite project that he has ever done, according to the Offerman Wood Shop, is a wooden canoe named Huckleberry. And it is very gorgeous. That sounds right. That's perfect. <laughs> As we do each week, we are going to talk about some things that we saw in the making app that were an inspiration or caught our eye. So, Terry, what did you see in the making up this week that made you go, ooh, that's amazing? <laughs> so there were there were two things that really came to mind when I was thinking about this. And one of them, I think the username is Quay, Q-U-O-E. <gasps> that's Quo. Quo. Okay. That's okay, Quaylin. great. Yeah, that I saw that account. And it's such a funny one for me because I have recently begun to discover that maybe lactose is not for me. And yet this post about this farmer's cheese that this user made, I was like, I have to make cheese as soon as physically possible. I don't know why that appealed to me so much, but I just, I was like, I've always been interested in the idea of making cheese and 
all basically every craft I see on there I want to do as soon as possible. But we actually have a friend in Michigan who like is a cheesemonger and like has a company called Boss Mouse Cheese and we've been to see the production facility. And so like it's always been there. But like I always think of it on a large scale and not just like a single wheel of farmer's cheese that looks so incredible. So that that definitely jumped out at me. I love cheese. I was vegan for three years when I first mm-hmm. moved to Seattle way, way back in the day, almost 20 years ago. And for the first three years that I lived here, I was vegan because I grew up in okay. Phoenix where I don't know, like I was vegetarian before I moved to Seattle. But just as an example of how that was, we one time went to a mm-hmm. Mexican food restaurant with my family and I asked for a bean and cheese burrito. I said, you know, I just need it to be vegetarian because mm-hmm. I don't eat meat. And they said, do you want to add chicken? <laughs> And so when I first moved here, the idea of becoming a vegan was so much easier because Seattle had vegan restaurants and it was more of a thing back then. Obviously now in Phoenix, that's completely different and people understand what vegan is most of the time. But I could only do three years because I love cheese It has been a struggle. Just this morning, I was trying two different kinds of vegan cheese with my breakfast and both of them I was like, but it's not cheese, though. <laughs> like I just, I don't know. I'm just going to have to buy stock and lactate and hope for the best because I can't live without cheese. I can't do it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I will say Carrie and Ashley to and David, the three co-founders of Making, are all vegan. So maybe they have some ideas for cheese for you. Vegan cheese. I am struggling out here. It is rough. <laughs> It's rough in the cheeseless street. Yep, but like the other <laughs> vegan things, like we we had a great vegan restaurant in Omaha called Modern Love. They did these incredible Kentucky fried shrooms and they had like we would take people there from out of town. We are not vegan. And we would like that was a place on the list when we brought people to town, especially people who weren't vegan. Like my father-in-law, we were like, you have to come with us to this place because it's just incredible. You don't miss a lot of it. And the desserts are the best on the planet. The only thing that I have not been able to find. Yep. Is cheese. That is as a replacement. Otherwise I'm I would consider yeah. maybe being vegan again. Is there a term for that? I'm vegan except for cheese. <laughs> between two ferns, but between vegan and vegetarian. Yeah, it's like vegan I don't with know. training wheels, I think. That's how I think. <laughs> but yeah, in addition to the farmer's cheese that I have been thinking about basically nonstop since I saw it, I also saw a post from Little Bohemian Crafts that was this beautiful folk painting. That reminded me, again, when we lived in Omaha, we lived not too far from Little Bohemia for a while. And there were these beautiful murals on the sides of buildings down there. And it's just a, it's a particular art style that like really speaks to me. I don't have a ton of understanding of the cultural background of it necessarily, but just the vibrancy of the colors and the sharp lines and that kind of stuff. And the sort of floral motifs really, I think that, I think they're beautiful. So that was another one that jumped out at me. Nice. How about you? Awesome. As I'm scrolling, I usually like to go into the marketplace and just like peruse to see what's new. And this specific pattern jumped out at me, especially for this episode. So the shop owner, Shanna Lines, and this specific pattern is called Lumber Support and Shanna Lines Designs. And it is a knitted pillow of a log. (laughs) Okay, I love that. That's fantastic. So this worked out well for this episode. Also, 
one year I, I was log say. ready for Halloween. <laughs> yeah. I could have knit this for that. might be time for, for a that. repeat. I know. I do still have all the stuff. And it was a, quite a good costume, especially because my dog was Agent nice. Dale Cooper. My dog, Marcella, will wear clothing. So he had a tie <laughs> and we put a coffee yeah, cup in course. front of him because that's how it, that's how it went. Nice. Not only was that very impressive, but every time somebody posts that they've made shoes, I'm yeah. like, that is next level. So Keely Green, who is Knit Knacks, K-N-I-T-K-N-A-C-K-Z, posted a pair of sandals that they I made. Some of those. And I was like, Oh my what? gosh. I know. Yeah. It's incredible. I wouldn't even know where to begin. That's so cool. I know. It's just like standing ovation for people who have made shoes. Every time somebody posts shoes or a pair of jeans that they've made, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. wow, what is this Honestly, magic? All of wow. all of like garment wow. making is magic to me. My wife made a dress for pride celebrations out of this fabric. She just we went I went with her to pick up the fabric because I was looking at some other pieces and she just came home and made a dress. Just like it was nothing. And I just it's magic to me every time. I agree. Granted, you also know how to knit. So I'm sure that like people who don't no fiber arts is like how did you make that sweater but the sewing aspect of it oh, is yeah. something that i'm just like what yeah it's amazing <laughs> how i know it's i think it's my goal one day is to really dive in and be able to create a wardrobe but i just know that i do not it's like one of those things that you know as somebody who has adhd <laughs> the hyper focus that will happen Yep. I do not have yep. time for that. <laughs> no way. I've thought I about that too, though. That. As a, a lanky guy, I, like I need tall sizes and pretty much no store is going to carry them unless I pay a lot extra. Like we've talked about, oh, like, we could make some shirts for me. And I'm just like, that could get out of control so fast. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Someday. Someday we'll be posting our clothing and handmade shoes. That's right. To We're the manifesting a lot of things today. And I like someday. that. You really are. We really are. I just, I love this for us. We want to hear your story. How did you get into woodworking? Where did you just like come <laughs> out of the womb carrying a saw? I'm, I hope not. Gosh, that sounds horrible for your mother. But yeah, like, I where mean, did this it, all start? In a sense, like <laughs> it, it's kind of that because it is like this family connection going back. But my grandfather, when I was a kid, was a master woodworker. And he was like, I always love to just tell a snippet of his story because he was a literal rocket scientist, worked on rocket, like missile silos and like rocket programs. No joke. Was a naval aviator and was head of design staff at General Motors. And then also on the side was like a master woodworker. And so would make toys and furniture and like decor and all sorts of stuff for our families and for like the lake house that he built. Um, and so like, yeah, like this man. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm always striving for his level and truly like, it's not an insult on me to say I might never get there because I'm never going to be a rocket scientist. I have no illusions about that. But in any case, <laughs> I had this incredible example of this man who would put his mind to making something and just do it and had all of this knowledge that went along with it. And I had some pretty specific examples too of like being at the lake house with him. And it's a simple thing, but 
we needed somewhere to store the firewood for the campfire, for the bonfire pit. And he was like, go grab me. And he told me the pieces of wood and the nails and the hammer and whatever. Whereas I was like, when he said, oh, we need somewhere to store the firewood. In my head, I was like, oh, it's too bad. We'll go to the store later. <laughs> he was like, no, we're going to build this thing. And here's how we're going to do it. And it just, it was incredible to me that he was able to put those things together in his mind and then put them together in the real world. And an hour later, we had this concrete physical thing that we had made. And so that had always inspired me. But I didn't actually get into woodworking until like a few years ago because I just never had the space. I was in and out of apartments. I was in a college town. I was, you know, whatever it was. So I had all these other crafts that I did. But in the back of my mind, it was always like someday I would love to do woodworking. And I followed woodworkers on social media and would get lost in hours and hours of lathe videos, just watching people turn bowls and spindles and things like, man, if you need something to space out on a little bit look up wood turners on social media and you will just, oh, you will find it. But we moved into a house in 2019 for the first time and I had a five by nine space in the back of the garage and I went, okay, I don't know, let's see what we can do. And so that's kind of where the woodworking part of my journey actually started was only four years ago. Wow. There's this theme that keeps coming up when I talk to people about their craft when they learn it from somebody that is blood related, it's almost like it feels like it was just passed down to them through the generations, that it feels really natural. You know, I had this visual example of my grandfather using his hands and using tools to make things. And so there's a little bit of that I just learned almost by osmosis of just being around him. It's like picking up someone else's muscle memory. But I think it's interesting in the way that it's been a different journey for me, partially because of just the ways that my life is different from his. He had a different start. He had a different educational background, that kind of thing. I hadn't done this kind of like really physical kind of work until I started doing this. And I have all of my various wonderful neurodivergencies to work with as well. And so there are certain things that he did that are just not really on the table for me. But I do feel that kind of through line because my father also used to build homes and like is very handy and that kind of thing. So there is some of that, I think, that comes down and filters through the years and the generations. And then there's a certain amount of it that is just making your own way and forging your own path that I think that's why I'm very careful about that is because I, for me, honestly, it can be a little bit discouraging to look at some of the things that comparison is the thief of joy or whatever the phrase is. Look at the kind of work that he did and go, why can't I do mm -hmm. that? Shouldn't this be in my blood as the saying might go? And I think there's a big risk in that kind of thought of like, well, if I'm not good at it, maybe it's not in my blood. I guess it's just not for me. I should do something else. And my philosophy from the start has been like, mm. I'm going to be real bad at it when I start, but I'm going to fight. I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> like I'm going to make my way through it. And so it is that balance of there is some of this that is part of me and part of my history. And there's some of it that's just my own stubborn nature of saying, if it's not part of me already, I'm going to make it part of my life. Yeah. I think that is very true that, I don't know, assigning this idea that because somebody in your family is has a certain level of talent with something means that you should also have that. That puts an extra level of pressure on there. But I think that there is 
this just like general, I don't know, like, for example, my my mom and I were going through photos after my dad passed and we found a photo of it was me and my mom and then me and my dad, two different photos. And we were all wearing yellow sweaters. And my mom goes, oh, my gosh. I totally forgot. Your Nona knit those for us. And I was like, Nona was a knitter? What? (laughs) And she was like, yeah, I totally forgot about that. And of course, my my mom's mom, my grandma that was here in the States, she also was very like crafty and such. It's one of those things where it is in your blood in a certain way. And there is a draw to it from that. But (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Let's not compare. Let's not compare ourselves. You see someone doing these things and whether you remember it years later or not, or you see the things that they've made and you think, okay, that's something that a person can do. Speaking of being multi-craftual, I had a, a really intense phase where I did, mm-hmm. I was cross-stitching 24-7. <laughs> like I was thinking of cross-stitch patterns in my sleep. I was stitching in front of the TV. I was reading books and stitching. And like, there's a history of that kind of crafting in my family as well. There were cross-stitched and needlepoint mm-hmm. things on the wall in my bedroom as a kid that I would lay there as I fell asleep and stare at and it just had this love for. And that, again, when I finally was like, hey, I guess probably that's something I could do. And I tried it and, the, you know, there was some level of familiarity there with how it should look or what it, you know, what the process should be that I think there's absolutely having that history in your family or or around you, whatever it looks like, whether it's inspiration or, a, you know, a foothold of where to get into it. I think that's that's super valid. So take us through the part where you went from hobby to business. How did that come up? Because like last week, I spoke with Callie about marketing for small business. And we did talk about this whole idea that capitalism has taught us as a society that if you're Mm -hmm. good at doing something you can make money off of it and like sometimes that is for people and sometimes it's not and for you it was and there again nothing wrong with that if you feel that pull as as somebody who is a creator go for it but where did that where did that whole transition start for you i think that's a really interesting part of my journey because like there's this As soon as you start making something and you start, you know, getting good at it or being proud of it or sharing. I have friends who who do woodworking who refuse to share their finished products on social media because they're like, the minute I do, someone's going to say, hey, will you make one for me and make one for my friend? And like, even if you're getting paid for it, there's a line there that you maybe don't want to cross. And for me, that was kind of the case. I had started doing this woodworking stuff when we moved into our house and started with little, you know, a a little bench made of scrap wood for us to, for the mudroom to put our boots on and off. And then when I started making things that were more, you know, kind of consumer good type things that started to come in of people saying, could I pay you to make one for me? I didn't necessarily want to go that route at first, but my sort of journey is I, I was working a nine to five in public policy for a nonprofit. I was putting on a suit and going to the state capitol and meeting with legislators and testifying in committee hearings. And I loved that, but In October 2020, I contracted COVID and I had such intense long COVID symptoms, including um, cognitive symptoms that this entire conversation that we've had, I would have been completely incapable of. I could not finish this. I'd start a a sentence and not get distracted, like a blue screen of death in my head. The words would disappear. And as someone who has a degree in creative writing, it was horrifying to suddenly find myself unable to communicate speaking or writing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, I, I went from 
I would go to committee hearings and have testimony prepared. And I would rewrite my testimony on the back of the page in 15 minutes before I went up to speak. I was that comfortable with my words and my skill at language. Mm-hmm. And I ended up taking two whole months off work because I couldn't complete a sentence. It was a weird place to be. This thing that I had made kind of my identity, I suddenly couldn't do anymore. And we're in COVID. So it's like not like I can get out and go do things. So I was kind of just moping around the house all day. And my wife would say, hey, why don't you go to the wood shop for a while? And it's a thing I can do that I don't need language for in the moment. I can just kind of do. And so that was really kind of the turning point. I started spending more time in the wood shop and making new and different kind of projects and learning more skills and, you know, started to figure out what kinds of projects I was passionate about. And it kind of turned out that I never really got the level of comfort and skill with language or the energy level back that I used to have where I could do, you know, an hour commute to the state capitol in the morning and spend all day there walking around meeting people and an hour commute back. I'd get to noon and I'd just from the mental strain, I would be a wreck. And so we made a cross country move and decided, hey, if ever there was a time to take a shot at this, it now is a thing I do full time. I'm building this business kind of from the ground up. There's certainly not the way I would have planned to do it. I probably would have tried to make that a little more gradual change. Uh, but it, for me, it's kind of interesting. And, you know, we live in the society we live in. So we have to have money to be able to do things and live and exist. And so mm-hmm. woodworking <laughs> was almost this like parachute that when I found myself unable to do what I used to do, I had this thing that I could sort of grab onto and say, okay, I can do this. This is a thing I can do. And it's not at the level I used to have and financially and all that kind of stuff, but it is something that I can do in order to participate in this wonderful society we live in, but also something (laughs) I love to do, which is I'm extremely, extremely privileged to be in the position that I can do that and not be falling, you know, to rock bottom and like, I'm fortunate to have the support from my wife that I do and all that kind of stuff. How wonderful that you could take this thing that you love doing though and make it into your career when something that you loved doing before was just not it just sounded like it wasn't an option anymore you know yeah it it kind of stopped being a a possibility for me and it's interesting we talk about that through line of family and history the reason I got into the work that I did I worked for the Alzheimer's Association. I was a policy director in memory of my grandfather who passed from complications of Alzheimer's. And when that was no longer an option, suddenly here was this other connection that I had to him that I was able to then shift my focus to and still kind of have that through line of that family history and that family like honoring him and who he was and who he is, you know, in 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 my heart. That was just so lovely. What is like your favorite thing to make when you're in when you're in your workshop? Um, what's your favorite thing to make? Honestly, for me, um, my favorite thing that I that I'm making sort of these days is the wooden anxiety fidgets that I sell, which are my favorite for a lot of reasons. But one of them is they're a thing that I made it like I made the first one for me because I go to these markets and I'm in this big, noisy environment full of people and having these social interactions. And that is not really my wheelhouse a lot of times. I I can turn it on when I need to and I can be that, you know, that person who can be outgoing. But you, you sit me at a market for six hours in the noise and the distractions and I start to fall apart a little. 
So I made these little fidgets just to give me something to focus some of that nervous energy on. And kind of to the same point as earlier, somebody said, hey, do you sell those? Because I need that too. And that connection, I think, is the thing that brings me the most joy with the work is when somebody connects with something I make and they say, that's something that would make my life better. It's so funny the layers in which the, these fidgets are kind of therapeutic for me. Obviously, they are a coping mechanism for my mental health struggles. Um, but also I make them on the lathe and lathe turning aside from occasionally being super scary. If your tool catches or something comes loose is this like meditative process that I've refined down and I can do it pretty, pretty easily. And it's turning this raw blank of a piece into this beautiful little handy, satisfying fidget. Um, and so that to me, I think it's my favorite thing. Cause I can just go in, throw a blank on the lathe, kind of a little bit zone out within reason for safety reasons, but um, <laughs> it's just, I, I know the process so well now that I can, you know, spend a whole day making them and it just, it feels good to do that. And then that people continue to connect with them continues to be a little bit mind blowing and extremely like fulfilling. I have not explored the world of fidget mm -hmm. anything. However, as I'm sitting here, my legs are doing the bouncing and I often find myself, you know, moving or doing something or whatever. I should probably get one <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. I, it's such a weird thing because they're so simple because, you know, fidgets, I've seen some incredible fidgets that are like really intricately crafted of metal and there's all these moving parts and everything and they're beautiful and I love them and they work. And then mine is just this little disc of wood with a depression in it that you can sort of put your thumb in like a worry stone. And it's, it is amazing to me that the diversity of types of fidgets um, that people use and how such a simple thing can make that kind of impact. Because if you just need that little bit of motion or that little bit of grounding, it's been truly like a lifesaver for a lot of situations where uh, otherwise I would probably have had to remove myself from, you know, whatever environment at a market or at a concert or whatever it might be. You said something while you were telling us how you make it. And I literally know nothing about woodworking again, except for Ron Swanson. So can you explain the process of it? I think it started with oh, an L. Uh, so so turning them on the lathe? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So explain that process to Absolutely. all of us. <laughs> I mean, what you think of typically with, with woodworking is using a table saw or a circular saw or a hand saw, whatever it might be. You know, you've got the piece and you bring the tool to the piece or whatever, and you, you cut it to pieces. And the lathe is um, a machine that you mount a piece of wood on and it's just on the one axis, it spins it and you can use um, different chisels and gouges to sort of turn it into a circular shape. Um, and so for the anxiety fidgets, I start with a two by two by six block of wood mounted in the lathe, turn it to a perfect round stock, and then sort of shape the individual pieces. And I kind of cut them off the ends. I, I work from the one big piece and sort of make them individually. Uh, so there's a certain stage where it looks like I'm making a Stanley Cup replica, which is a lot of fun and very timely for this time of year with the finals happening. Um, <laughs> and it's... You know, there's different types of gouges to do different types of work, whether you're carving a, like a bowl, doing the opening of a bowl, or if you're doing like spindles, like all up and down your stair rail, all of those spindles, you can make those on the lathe. And there's a surprising amount of variety in it, even though it's just the one tool and it's just, you got the one setting, it goes around in a circle on the one axis. 
you can make some really cool things on it. And like I said, if you're ever looking for something to just sort of zone out and watch, watching lathe turning videos is, I, I, I'm telling you, I used to fall asleep every night watching them because it just, it's really, it's really satisfying. Honestly, oddly satisfying should be the hashtag on every lathe video I've ever seen. What is your favorite medium to work with when it comes to different types of wood? Oh boy. Um, it's interesting because there's, there are different ones for different reasons. If I'm making anything out of like dimensioned lumber, you know, like not things on the, on the lathe where it's this round stock, um, I tend to like to work with black walnut, which is like pretty basic as far as, you know, a, a material goes, um, a lot of stuff is made of it, but it's just such a beautiful wood. It has, you can have this really incredible high contrast between the like heartwood, the middle of the piece or the, the sap wood out toward the edges. You can get really cool grain patterns in it, this swirling grain. And with that, the dark color of black walnut, it can be really beautiful for one of the things I like about that is I've used them as an opportunity to work with a lot of different kinds of wood. So like olive wood is one that I've made a lot of the fidgets out of and the different sort of varieties of patterns of the grain that you can get are incredible. And it's kind of fun to work my way down a piece, creating another fidget, you know, each time. And, and each one is unique because it's coming from a different part of the blank and the grain is so, you'll hear me talk about the wood grain a lot. And that's like kind of my whole thing is <laughs> in my entire time doing woodworking, I think I've stained only one piece I've ever made because when it, when it looks the way it does naturally, the way that the color and the grain and the texture of all that, why would I ever stain that, you know, and try to change that? So that's kind of been a through line through all of my work is like really leaning on just the natural beauty of the material and then kind of minimalist designs and minimalist finishes to just let that shine. Beautiful. <laughs> Tell us about your workshop. What is your typical setup? Are you listening to podcasts or music? In very fitting style to my ADHD, it really depends on the day. There was a long time where I was doing audiobooks every day in the shop and like that was my thing. And I'd just get in there, put on an audiobook and just, you know, work for eight hours. Um, there was a good stretch there where I was like really making an effort to find new music. So I would just put on whatever like randomly generated Spotify playlist. And then when I found a song I liked, I'd go in and heart that and I would build a playlist every month of all the new songs that I found, which was great. It was just so much effort. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've found myself returning to just the same music all the time. Uh, or the other thing that tends to happen a lot is um, I am a big fan of women's soccer. And I've watched a lot of like the women's super league out in, in the UK. And so like their games are played basically midday for us. So I'll be in the shop and I'll put on my screen, my bigger monitor, one of those games. Um, I can't tend to pay a lot of attention to that because it's very important to focus on what I'm doing. Sports has always been like a really great back background noise to me. Shout out to women's soccer. Yes. Or women's football, if we're saying the technical <laughs> correct. Yes. Not American oh boy. terms. They're going to come after me, aren't they? <laughs> I also believe it's called a match, Terry. Yeah, I'm out on the pitch. <laughs> <and> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, we went to the Sounders Oil Rain doubleheader. It always blows my mind when we're sitting there in an Oil Rain match and I'm like looking out and there's Megan Rapinoe <laughs> on the pitch and I'm like, what? Yeah. I mean, there's not even just Megan Rapinoe. Like the, so many people on the Oil Rain that are just so incredibly talented. Oh, yeah. It's 
definitely fangirl one moment. game <laughs> like one game of the cascadia rivalry up there on the nwsl side and you you've got like half of the u.s and canadian olympic teams it's incredible i know yeah i we don't have a team here in columbus so we actually in the last in the last uh couple two three months have done a about 33 total hours round trip to Chicago. Women's soccer definitely suggests diving into that if you Because the yet. Women's World Cup is coming up too. So like it's about, it's almost yeah. time to watch like the best of the best. So tune oh, into that. So good. Anyway. Yes, 100%. <laughs> Thank you for joining our National Women's Soccer League podcast. Yes, exactly. We call these side quests. Yeah. On this podcast, we just did a side quest together, Terry. That was, and it was a good one. I enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, so besides your grandfather and your father, are there any mentors, teachers, you know, anybody that you kind of look up to when it comes to woodworking? There's definitely folks that I know from social media. I know we know most of the people in our lives at this point in, in 2023. And so like there are people whose content really like kept me going while I didn't have a wood shop and really like got me excited to get into the shop and start trying new things. Um, and so like Ashley Harwood is a wood turner, probably all wood turners that I'm in her name. Just like I said, it was like a year or two of just constantly watching their videos. Steve the wood turner is one I think is his, his username everywhere. Richard Findlay. What I love about the woodworking community um, parts of the woodworking community is there are some people who are so generous and so um, willing to educate about techniques and about, you know, how they do what they do. And so I'll see these videos. There will be video challenges or video tutorials about how to do things on the lathe that I've never tried before. A couple of these folks, their family goes back in wood turning like 300 years. It's incredible, like the history that they have. Wow. Instead of you know, hoarding all that knowledge and, and saying, this is what we do. And they freely give that information away. And so I would say it's more in general, I have this pool of education that I've, that I've pulled from because to me, I'm, I'm very much a collaboration over competition kind of person. So there are other woodworkers here in the area that I'm in now, or other people that I just know through social media who I've connected with who will, you know, if I have a, a business question or a woodworking specific question or whatever it is, I can turn to them and they'll happily give advice. Built by Pops is one of them, I think, who is also on the making app, who's a, a friend of mine from, oddly enough, back in the days when we both were part of the same friend group on Tumblr and neither of us did work <laughs> woodworking at the time. And now we both are woodworkers and we kick ideas back and forth. And it's it's just so cool to have kind of that shared experience and have people who are willing to, rather than gatekeep, who are willing to like bring other people into the fold and share what they know in more of a like rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. I like using that yeah. phrase a lot. It's a good one. Here's your moment to rise the tide, if you will. If somebody is like, I would love to dip my toe into woodworking, but it feels like it might be a lot to take on. What would you say is like a really good first thing to try? I, you know, oddly enough, a thing that I haven't really tried much of, but that I've seen a lot and like I really want to get into is wood carving is like can be a really accessible mm. way to get started and just kind of get a feel for the materials and get a feel for the workability of them. And you can start out like the tools themselves, I think, you know, are an investment. But if you start out, you can start out carving like poplar and beech and softer woods like that that are easier and cheaper to come by. And you can make really cool things. 
And I think that's that's kind of a, a low barrier for entry kind of way in. Um, I I also think like looking in your area to see a lot of like community colleges now have maker spaces where you can go in and you can do a lesson or even really the woodworking stores, several different ones throughout the country. You can go in and take a class on, you know, making a charcuterie board or whatever it might be just to see like, is this something that speaks to me? Does that bug kind of kind of grip me and like, okay, this is a thing I want to keep doing. I have no illusions about the fact that woodworking in general is a pretty expensive craft to get into. I, you know, we've talked about knitting. You get two knitting needles and a, and a skein of yarn, you're set. You can, you can make something cool. My table saw is not a minor investment. <laughs> yeah. There, there is a lot of, um, I think apprehension from people about getting into it. I will say you don't need the most expensive tools. You don't need top of the line. You know, there are people whose whole thing is that they've got the best, most expensive tools there are and their whole shop is matching color coordinated. And that's great for, for whoever. I'm not going to talk that down either. But I think it's easy to look at social media and go, oh, okay, I can't do that. So I can't do woodworking. My first tools, mm -hmm. I was in a five by nine space in the back of the garage with tools that I had bought from the Habitat Restore, from estate sales, and from garage sales. These were not secondhand tools. These were third or fourth hand tools. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> a matter of, you know, figuring out, I'd say, Follow some woodworkers on social media and see what kind of thing speaks to you and then try that out. You don't have to get a fully outfitted shop just to try out one particular type of, of making. See, see what works. Don't worry about having all the best things. Don't worry about being good at it. Just like give it a shot and see if it's something you like. And then you can build from there. It's been now four years for me building to where I am now and there's a lot of room to grow. <laughs> um, but you never know if you don't try what can people find in your shop right now? And what is something that you would like to eventually make and sell, but you haven't tried to create that yet? That is a great question. And I, I spend a lot of time thinking about things I want to make, but I'll, I'll tackle the first part first. <laughs> things you can find in my shop right now is, you know, we talked a little bit about the anxiety fidgets. Um, those are a thing that I'm just constantly making and, and putting in the shop. So there, those are available. The way my, my business actually started was making houseplant accessories, so like plant propagation stations. So there are several varieties of those in the shop, from a block of wood with holes drilled in it to hold test tubes to like more carefully designed, you know, wooden frames and that kind of thing. Charcuterie boards are probably the other thing that, you know, are the biggest part of what I do. Um, again, a, one of those things that's like a lot of people make them because they're an easy way into the space, but they're also just kind of really fun to make. And then you get to eat cool food off of them. So like, what's not to love? <laughs> really, if everything comes back to food for me. I mean, really, it sounds like it's coming back to cheese. I mean, gosh, it really is. <laughs> Ugh, I just talked to somebody the other day about trying to be their supplier for butterboards for their for their restaurant and whiskey bar. And again, like, okay, is it is it vegan butter? <laughs> like, that's okay though. I'm happy to make them and have other people enjoy them. But yeah, I think I'd say those are the three like biggest areas of of what I make. As far as something that I would like to get into more is making more like furniture pieces. I've done some live edge tables with like hairpin legs. I've done a couple with legs that I've I've designed and built myself. One of the things I would say I don't like about sort of the woodworking space is like this idea that you're not a real woodworker unless you're like making big furniture pieces and like 
using hand tools. And like, if, if you're not making a dovetailed whiskey cabinet with hand tools, you're not a real woodworker. That's trash, to be honest. Like, that's nonsense. Yeah. That's not to say. Uh, it also sounds like something Ron Swanson would say. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it certainly sounds like something Ron Swanson would make. Um, and that's not to say I would, yes, I would love yes. to make myself a nice whiskey cabinet. But also, like, again, I think more tying back to that through line with my grandfather, like I, the heat, there's a kitchen table up at the lake house that he built that that table is still there and is still used. And like the number of family gatherings and birthday dinners and meals that have been had around that table, like that, that appeals to me on a really deep level. Um, so that kind of furniture that could be more of like an heirloom piece and build that sort of history and have that connection between generations. That I think is where I want to go eventually, not to stop doing the things that I do now because I love doing these things and they are as much real woodworking as anything else, but kind of challenge my skill set, learn a little bit more and make those bigger pieces that I think people tend to pass along to, you know, the next generation or, or whatever that may be. It, I mean, not to compare making a table to making a sweater, <laughs> two different things, but I don't know. There was a very long time where I didn't think that I could make clothing besides hats and mm -hmm. scarves, right? And I hear this a lot. I can only make a scarf. And it's like, no, you totally have the tools within your brain to put all of this right. together, right? It's just the execution that might take a little bit longer at first because you're you're incorporating new things. Well, I mean, I mean, to be a little on the nose about it, it's it's all of those new things in your toolbox for, you know, building this thing. Like it's those skills that compound on top of one another. Early on when I when my wife taught me to knit, you know, I, I knit a rectangle and I was like, cool, I can make a rectangle. And she goes, no, 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 you can make a scarf or you can make a hat. Or you can make a sock. Like it's all kind of just rectangles. You just, you know, it is having the the knowledge and the confidence to sort of then what's the next step? What's that next, you know, the next skill that I need to learn? And that comes with time and experience and practice. Um, and I would say too, you know, it's a thing I think about a lot being from a crafty household where we've got cross stitch on the wall behind me and my wife made a dress the other day and I'm a woodworker and that kind of thing where there's this, this distinction between like, fiber craft and like the the craft that I do and like they are not the same making a table is not making a sweater but they're both crafting I think it is mm -hmm. silly for people to like choose the hill to die on that like there's some more inherent value or something like that for for one or the other and all of that there's so much more tied up and <laughs> wrapped up in that but that's something I think about a lot and it's part of why I'm so insistent on and, be, and proud of like working in different media like it's you're learning a lot of the same kind of things of technique and process and patience and attention to detail. It's just a matter of what you're working with. So mm -hmm. sorry, a little soapbox moment there. That's okay. We're, we've already talked about it. We might have a whole podcast mm -hmm. episode dedicated to that. So, you know, get ready. Where can people find your shop? So if people want to find my work, I have a shop on Etsy right now that you can find the fidgets and the houseplant propagation stations. I'm in the process of working on getting a website built um, for a variety of reasons. But yeah, Etsy.com, Peregrine Wood Shop is my, my online store for right now. Awesome. And I will say I purchased some record stands from Terry. They are beautiful. Oh, yeah. I purchased a few extra for gifts. So... <laughs> 
Friends, if you're listening, you may be receiving one of those. As we are a uh, podcast about making and crafting, we also want to talk about what we are making and crafting ourselves. So, Terry, I know, as you've said, you are you are a very crafty human. So what all are you making right now? Oh, gosh. I mean, I've I've been pretty focused in the wood shop these days. Just it's market season. I've got a few of those coming up. A lot of my crafting has has really just been the wood shop. But in the meantime, I've also like two things that I really like to do that I listened the other day to the food uh, at celebration episode mm. and food and drink like cooking and uh, that kind of stuff is another area that I really like. And so I've been one of the things that I found really like nice as sort of a weekly reset is I'll make a homemade chai concentrate with like I'll grind the spices myself and like really understanding and gaining a better appreciation for the ingredients. That's something I've really been enjoying lately. And then I've got my caffeine for the whole week, which is I desperately need most days. That's one thing that comes to mind for me. The other thing I was thinking of is we went to a Red Stars game last weekend and uh, for Pride Night and my contribution to the tailgate was I brought a cocktail. So I've been making like hibiscus syrups and I make a chai syrup when I make my chai concentrate. So like a chai old fashioned is like my go-to drink. So that's an, that's another sort of shoot and drink kind of related area that has been a little bit more of a focus for me outside of the shop these days. I always have to ask this because it's one of my favorite things, as I've noted almost every episode. Are you watching anything or listening to anything? Yeah, I um, I was thinking about this a lot because I, I noticed the question in previous episodes. And I am a lot of times a person who tends to just go back and watch the same things. Like I'm a big comfort watcher. Um, so like the number of times basically from the start of the pandemic that I've watched uh, <laughs> Into the Spider-Verse or the Charlie's Angels movie from 2019, oh God, which is like amazing. my favorite movie. <laughs> My wife and I watch Dimension 20, the Dungeons and Dragons campaigns that they have from the Dropout Network. Um, and they just announced today their next one is Dungeons and Drag Queens. Oh, and my like, God. Bob the Drag Queen is going to be on there. I'm super stoked about it. <laughs> one of the things that I, I'm still working on the socks that I have been working on. My goal is to power through those in the next week because of a few reasons. But while I'm working on my socks, I have Drag Race All-Stars is currently on and mm -hmm. i have been watching drag race all-stars nice. this season i feel like um i was i really don't want to do spoilers here but i will say i feel like it's uh, you know heidi and closet did decide to go home which made me really sad so if you have not watched all-stars yet definitely jump in on that anything rupaul related is just wonderful and then another thing that I watched, <laughs> I actually binged it last weekend. It's called Queen of the Universe. And it's actually a drag singing okay. competition. It's like the voice yeah. meets RuPaul's Drag Race. It was amazing. And it's like queens from okay. all around the world. Queen of the, uni queen of the Universe. Okay, queen That's, of the it's universe. in my head because I binged it all in one day. <laughs> Noted. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That just reminded me, too, of uh, speaking of binging something, um, we over the weekend binged the third season of I Think You Should Leave, <laughs> which is a family favorite among my wife's side. So we every time we get together with them, when we were in Chicago this weekend, we just burned right through the third season. I have to make my socks quickly is, well, one, I'm planning on creating um, something <laughs> special for my mom. 
who listens to this podcast, so I can't talk about it. Um, but anyways, that's I'm hoping that that will happen. Okay. Uh, I did a thing the other night mm-hmm. where I was scrolling Instagram and I saw I kept seeing this top come up and um, it's the As If Tea Light by yarn mm-hmm. that is suggested is magpie fibers which we love so i purchased the pattern and i ordered the yarn and so that is coming i'm very excited about it and that nice. will be another thing that i will be working on um <laughs> but i definitely have a lot of things in the queue and this totally jumped the queue so uh you know i'm <laughs> yep it happens so one of the things that we talked about before all of this and that we've really connected on is how important it is for us to be loud and proud about our values and what we support and well what we don't support so let's jump into that a little more Uh, one of the very first things that we did at making was put together our list of values and kind of write out our mission statement so that everything was built upon these values if you are curious about what those are you can go to themaking.com backslash about but um i know that you are also very very loud and proud about your values as a business not only just as a human um, and you've supported quite a few amazing nonprofits with your yeah. business. So do you want to jump into kind of like why that is important to you? Absolutely. I've been told recently that I've kind of always been uh, a person who like has this really strong sense of my own sort of sense of like moral justice and like very black and white about things. And that can be good and bad depending on the situation. But it was important to me starting this business to carry my personal values through to the business itself. Um, I think, you know, we talked a little earlier about like we live in this capitalist hellscape and there's not a whole lot we can do about that. And so I think part of it to me was I'm going to control the things I can control and do what I think is right with the things that I have a say in. And so that has kind of shown up in different ways for me. As you mentioned, you know, some of the organizations that I've chosen to support. um, I actually on my Etsy shop, like right up at the top, there is a um, anti-racism statement that just basically says like, look, if, if you're not on the same page with this, one, I reserve the right to just not do business with you. And two, I suggest you do better. And, you know, here are some resources. Some of that came about from seeing just the ways that like other groups or other businesses kind of said one thing and did another, or like, we're happy to take money from a certain community and then act against them in so many other ways and like betray them in so many ways. And I just wanted nothing to do with that. And also, you know, like I said, I, I started really shifting more into being a business with this in 2020 in sort of with the backdrop of the sort of uprisings that were happening around the country, including, you know, acts of violence in our community in Omaha that were so, so, so jarring and upsetting. And so that kind of carried through all the way into what the business is now. So it, it has included having those statements in my business that the things I support and also like early on when we when I first went full time with this, there was a, the first, I think the first market that I was planning to do that I was signed up for, I ended up backing out of because the, I signed up and then the decision came down on row and then it came out that the person who ran that market was like part of this really abhorrent anti-abortion group mm. that was like, 
I wanted nothing to do with that. I'm, I'm just getting this business off the ground. I've got this market I'm looking forward to. I need like to make some sales. And I was like, like, it's a tough spot to be in, but I can't be a part of this. And so that was kind of a, that was a little bit of a make or break. Like, okay, I'm, I'm committing to mm-hmm. putting my personal values and living them out through my business. Um, and I'm glad I did it, but it just like, mm-hmm. it was a, it was a weird spot to do that. Having a business that was barely off the ground. It's, you know, 100% impossible to completely not support certain organizations in this world that maybe we don't align with. Right. Like. I think every single carrier, you know, donates to people who their values don't align with mine, right? Like, but you have to have a phone. I think that that's like one example, right? right? Um, Yeah, yeah. I think that they're, you know, when it comes Mm -hmm. to running a business, though, it is so important to have these values built in from the start. Right. What would you say mm-hmm. to somebody who has maybe started their business already, but they're wanting to incorporate more of their own values within the, um, their business and kind of what are some maybe some tips that you can give somebody um, for running a small business and being loud and proud about their values? Yeah, I I think to your point, I mean, it's a tough thing to do, especially if you're just starting out and and, you know, the sort of the good place kind of idea of like, there are so many cascading downstream effects from any choice you make. And there's, it's impossible to fully vet every single organization and supplier and customer and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so I think it's finding that balance of what, what can you control? What do you have, you know, the flexibility to make the choice in alignment with your values? Um, and then sort of set that boundary and say, okay, I'm not going to support this thing or, you know, get involved in this way with a, a, an organization or a market or a supplier or a vendor that is outspokenly, you know, against my, my views and values. I think for me, one of the things that I've tried to do, and I've, I certainly could always do better, is, you know, being somebody who, it, by all appearances, hit the privilege jackpot, right? There is not a room in this country I can walk into where I do not drip with privilege or that I would not really fit in into. Um, I think it's important then to listen to voices of people who don't have all that privilege. And instead of just picking whatever the big name is or whatever the thing is that I hear about first or that has the best marketing campaign, listening to the voices of people who are in groups that are affected by these legislative decisions and these sort of culture wars that are being waged against them and say, okay, who, who would that person say is the group that I should support or who, who is it that they are speaking up about so that it's not just me coming from my flawed perspective, picking whatever is the easiest. Uh, and so I've tried to do that a little bit of taking that kind of input as far as organizations to support organizations to keep an eye on. Um, and so I think that's that's served me well. And of course, like I said, I can always do better on that. But, you know, putting in some of that work, diversifying the other types of folks in your same space, like other woodworkers, it's woodworking is unfortunately a very gatekeepy space and very unfriendly to anyone who does not generally look like me. Um, Terry is a white man. And so I've, if I've you really tried get to get that. Terry is a white man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And not only that, I'm 
wearing a damn red and black flannel shirt. I'm dressed like a lumberjack. I didn't know if you did that on purpose or Um, not. (laughs) I didn't really, but uh, anyway, the point is, I think it's important to be intentional about expanding your horizons and what's around you and the people you're hearing from and seeing and supporting. And then that makes it easier than when it comes time to like, okay, I want to support an organization that serves whatever community or whatever cause to then you, you already have received this input of like, who are the organizations who are doing the work, who are in the community, who are of the community. Um, so for a lot of reasons, it's been important to me to like really make sure that I am following and engaging with and supporting a diverse group of makers and suppliers. And that's that I think has been one of the most um, valuable things, honestly, not even just in woodworking to take it back to to soccer again. Like I've made a point to follow more diverse groups of journalists who cover soccer because you see the same two or three faces on the national team posters or on advertisements or whatever it is. And like, there are incredible athletes who deserve better coverage and there are people doing that. And so like, I've found that to be helpful throughout all different sort of aspects of not just my work, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, my fandom of soccer, um, like listening to people who are out there doing the work and who are of this of the communities that I I want to do better for and by if I can. Mm-hmm. That advice should be trickling into all parts of our lives, right? Like even if we don't own a business, like if you're scrolling your feed, luckily the making app so far has been a pretty diverse community in craft and human. So that's pretty great. But if you're looking through any sort of social media or reading blogs or whatever, and everybody looks the same. Make sure you're listening to all types of voices from all humans, all walks of life. Yeah. When it's just from that perspective of like, it's it's better that way and it's better to support a more diverse group of people. It's also just more interesting. Oh, it's also yeah. just better content. It's more engaging to not just see the same people and the same things over and over again as you scroll. Because Lord knows I've scrolled for a long time and God, that would get so boring. Yep. Um, and it's... Yeah, I, I, it, that's just been a really big thing for me from the start of not just as as a business owner, but also like looking for inspiration and encouragement from people who have a variety of experiences, not just the the white guy who can fill his shop with the most expensive tools and get sponsored deals and that kind of stuff. But like, that's not my experience and that's not going to encourage me. I want to see people who have a variety of experiences. And that I think would be my biggest thing is just like, broaden your horizons, broaden your perspectives and listen when people are speaking about their experiences and about the organizations and the causes and the the work that matters to them. That's been a really helpful thing to sort of guide where I look to and and how, how I engage in that kind of community support from my business. Mm-hmm. So speaking of organizations, what are some of the organizations that you have supported that you wanted to highlight today? First one that comes to mind, um, this is one that I I really like because I, you know, I I do so much work on the lathe. And one of the things that people really like to make on the lathe is magic wands. They're a fun project to make. You can have a lot of creative leeway with them of the different types of designs and how you embellish them. Um, But I was seeing a lot of these wands being sold. Strong references to a particular boy wizard in uh, for, you know, whose who's author has turned out to be pretty horrible to, you know, a, a very vulnerable segment of the population. Mm-hmm. And to me, the idea of a wizarding 
world that is not inclusive and and safe for everyone is insane like it's just i don't it's it's not it's not right and so i it was important to me then i support with 50 percent of the profits from every magic wand that i sell goes to trans lifeline mm -hmm. and like that was a very intentional choice because there are so many people who that book and movie series was a big part of their life and it was such a massive betrayal and there mm -hmm. are people who still want to have that connection and enjoy that part of their life without supporting that particular person whose money goes toward attacking them so okay fine i'm gonna make these products and like there's not much profit coming back to me in the first place but what i can i'm gonna donate to trans lifeline so that's been a big one for me and Trans Lifeline is a grassroots hotline and microgrants nonprofit organization offering direct emotional and financial support to trans people in crisis for the trans community by the trans community. So head to translifeline.org to learn more and support because that is a big one. Our trans friends, humans, family out there, they're such an important part of our community. And um, it has been extra difficult lately. And we definitely want to make sure that everyone feels supported. And that is a good organization to support, to support the trans and, community. Yeah. And I think the, the thing that you, you kind of stressed there that I think was really important to me when I was making this choice was for and by, right? Mm -hmm. Like for the community, by the community. Because um, I'm not going to pretend to know the experience of folks who are feeling rightly so under attack by, you know, politicians and, and all of these groups. Like, I, I don't know that experience, um, but I think it's important to support, you know, an organization that is of that community. Um, so that was a big part of why I, I, I chose Trans Lifeline. And I'll also say too, you know, I want to say about all of this, like, again, even when it comes to supporting these nonprofits, there are some nonprofits, and I've worked in the nonprofit field for more than a decade, there are some nonprofits who are not doing things the right way. So like, it's hard to make that choice too. And I'm not going to pretend that I've got it perfectly right. These are, to the best of my ability, organizations that seem like they are doing the work in the right way, you know, and again, largely because I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I'm highlighting organizations that are of the community they serve. Mm -hmm. A second one that I wanted to highlight too is Kaleidoscope Youth Center, which is um, here in Columbus, Ohio, and they are an LGBTQIA youth services organization. And this one is, um, this was a wild experience, but this one is important to me. We attended a drag brunch um, uh, a while back to benefit them that was interrupted by a group of flag-waving, card-carrying, jackboot-stomping Nazis. Mm one of the most intense and like wild experiences of my life where we tried to form basically a barrier so that these, it was a drag brunch uh, fundraiser so that the performers and the folks from the youth center who were there did not have to sit there and witness this group screaming the, the most horrible things and just so aggressively um, trying to attack them and seeing the poise of the performers and of the folks from the youth center and seeing the way that they rallied around in such an incredible and positive way to this horrific, abhorrent attack that came at them just really like crystallized in me the need to support this organization. So at the time, I made a donation and tried and did a fundraiser through um, social media to try and rally some more support. And just, you know, it's such an incredibly vulnerable group of people, like these youth who, in a lot of cases, have 
lost their homes and their families and need this support um, to have this organization to provide services and support and community and connection for them. Like I get kind of emotional just thinking about it and, and kind of flashing back to that day of just like, I can't imagine being so full of hate that that is something that I would go out of my way to attack. And so that one was really important to me, having had that direct experience and, and seeing level of hatred and attack that is being levied at these, these folks. I get really emotional thinking about kids who don't have families anymore because they have decided to come out and be who they are. And organizations like this are all across the country. So definitely, you know, do your do your research and and see if there is one that you can support in your area. Um, but absolutely kaleidoscope at kaleidoscope belonging means being. And I think that that's beautiful. And so if you want to support yep. kaleidoscope, it is kycohio.org or um, search something in your area. And, you know, if you're able to donate or even give time, um, definitely, definitely do that. And we're not just saying this because it's Pride Month, always. Pride Month is every month, okay? That's what... Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And and I'll say too, like, that was a big part of why, like, Trans Lifeline was one of the first organizations that I supported because mm -hmm. I don't just want to be the kind of person who, like, puts a rainbow over my logo in June maybe donates a little bit of money to a cause and then shuts up about it for the rest of the year mm -hmm. because it's important to me personally and and it's important that it not be this conditional transactional corporate allyship that we've seen is so fragile and is so so skin deep all year round like your values don't change with the month mm -mm. it's like that's if, if they do they're not really your values um so that's that's been important um and then actually, wildly enough, the, the last one I want to highlight is also June is their month. Um, is the Alzheimer's Association, as I mentioned earlier. I used to, I was a volunteer with them for a decade. I worked for them as an employee for a while. I have a family connection. Um, and the support and resources and services that they provide to families in crisis as they deal with this devastating diagnosis of Alzheimer's is incredible. And I've worked with some of the most incredible people both the volunteers and other folks on staff. I've traveled to Washington, D.C. to advocate. I've, you know, been at support groups. I've, I've, I've seen kind of the full spectrum of that experience. And so that is an organization that's very dear to me. June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. So again, tying in not just a month, but the whole year. So I, I would suggest, you know, if folks are dealing with uh, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's in their family and they don't know where to turn or who to talk to, there is an 800 number for the Alzheimer's Association. That's 800-272-3900. There, there are resources to help you and your loved one navigate that, that diagnosis. Um, and, you know, that's another one I'll just, I'll never shut up about. ALZ.org. Definitely a really important organization. I'm glad that you're speaking up about it because that's another thing is there's always so much that I feel like it can feel a little overwhelming, right, mm -hmm. with everything that's happening in the world. So I love that you've really taken the time to kind of focus on organizations that have affected you specifically, right? Um, Alzheimer's mm -hmm. Association, obviously, you you worked there, but it sounds like your grandfather also, you know, went through that as well. 
unfortunately, like a lot of families, we didn't know that their resources were available until it was too late. Mm. Um, and so that became really like a motivating factor for me is like, okay, nobody else. I don't want anybody else to have that experience. Like, oh, if only we'd known. Mm -hmm. That is a phrase that just like, you know, that's that's what drove me all the, all the time I was a volunteer, all the time I was an employee um, is, you know, it is hard enough to do even with support. You shouldn't have to do any of that alone. It's a big, big part of my life. And I, I want to make sure that people don't have to go through it the same way that we did. Mm -hmm. um, I'm happy to raise awareness and raise funds or, or whatever it is that I can do. Just if I can connect one more person who says, oh, I didn't know that was available. Mm -hmm. Great. That's, that's all I need. Mm -hmm. There are so many organizations to support. It can be overwhelming, especially for somebody who wants to do it all. That's a good pro tip is like, hey, if you as an individual or a business are looking to support organization, put your money or time or any other resources towards something, find things that connect directly with experiences of your life or your community or whatever that really calls to you. And, you know, just know we can't all do everything as much as we want to. And right. that's okay. But as long as you're doing something, that is the goal, right? It is too much to take on to try to, to do everything. And I've faced that down and had to pull back a little bit. There was a while, like I said, I'm, this is a new business. There is not a lot of, I mean, truly, there's not really any profit yet, but like I, I had to sort of pull back a little bit and say, okay, like I can do what I can do. If I try to do too much, I won't be able to do anything. And it's the same, whether it's you're donating your time, your money, or your, your own personal energy, you can't pour from an empty cup, whether that's your energy or your money. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the other piece of advice I would give is just like, do what you can, but understand within reason what makes sense for you personally or professionally. Find, you know, reach out to the organization. Say, hey, how can I support you? If even if I can't make a, you know, I can't make a big donation every month or whatever it is, there are other ways to support um, that may be better suited to whatever your your current situation is. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You touched on this a little bit, but I, I do want to speak to ensuring that a nonprofit is a good fit for your business to support. Typically in the past, I've used something like guidestar.org or charitynavigator.org, which for those that are unaware, they are sites that apply ratings based on like impact results, accountability, finances, leadership, et cetera. And um, just to see where their money goes specifically and like the impact that they're making in the community since you're from the nonprofit space, are those good places to start? Those are great places to start. Um, I think the one that I think of that, that I don't think you mentioned is the Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance. Mm. Um, and then the, you can also, like, if you're really interested and you really want to look into it, you can, you know, go to an organization's website and oftentimes you can find their annual report or their 990. Can be difficult to dig through if it's like their actual 990 filing. Um, the one thing that I will say, and like people can take this with as big a grain of salt as they want, but having worked at a nonprofit, like I was a public policy staffer. My job was, in, for instance, with the Alzheimer's Association to make sure that like programs that support folks living with the disease are funded or like Medicaid, you know, services were provided and funded. I was not program staff. So technically I, my position was overhead. So like when you look at those expense ratios, Certainly, there is a level of expense ratio that is not okay. But I think it is an important reminder to people to say, like, 
an organization can't do much if they can't keep the lights on or, you know, give somebody totally. a chair to sit in to do their work, yes. which I, Lord knows I've had the same feeling before where I see a report and I go, they make how much? <laughs> like, I would just say, you know, understand that some of that is the folks who are doing the work, even if it's not program expense. Um, mm -hmm. Do your, do your research, look into them, talk to the organization if you can, or you know, whatever it might be, look up that, that kind of financial information. Um, and yeah, I think just don't go in, like I said, with whoever has the best marketing campaign that you've heard the organization the most. Um, really get an understanding of what they provide, who it is that's doing the work, and, and are they of the community, or if, or if not, are they at least in the community hearing what people actually need? Because there are so many nonprofits out there, there are so many organizations doing in in a lot of cases, really good work, and you can't support them all. But the ones that are out there doing the work in the community of and with the community, I think, are the ones that are are a good starting point. Awesome. Every episode, we like to end with a little moment of gratitude. So, what are you grateful for this week? I think I, I'm especially grateful this week for my support systems. Um, and like I, I touched on earlier, I am extremely fortunate to be able to do, make this move to doing this work full time because I have the support, not just financially, but like emotionally from my wife, Emily, who, you know, has been my biggest motivator and cheerleader and, you know, like business manager, <laughs> whatever it might be from day one, helping my often scrambled ADHD brain focus and, and, you know stay um, attentive to the things that are going to help this business grow. But beyond her, my family, my friends, the people who share, you know, the work that I'm doing, organizations, groups, sites like Making, who give me the chance to talk about what I do. I've been stunned and extremely grateful all along for people who, who give me the chance to do this um, because I know not everybody can or has, you know, the opportunity to do something they love. Um, so that's, Kind of, kind of my always moment of gratitude. I love it. My moment of gratitude for this week is I said it earlier. It's Pride Month is every month for making, especially, but also as my beliefs. I really, truly feel that, and I think that what is beautiful about Pride Month is this overwhelming feeling of queer joy that I see flowing through my screen as I'm looking through TikTok or even scrolling the making app. I've seen a few posts of people creating things for Pride Month, seeing all of the events that are coming up and that have happened this month within the city of Seattle. And I don't know. It's just beautiful. We we love we love queer joy. So that is Absolutely. I am grateful for that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing like seeing people be able to be their full selves in and be joyful about it. Thank you so much again for joining me. Can you remind the listeners where they can find you on the Making App and beyond? Yes, absolutely. So on the Making App, my username is at Peregrine Woodshop, uh, Peregrine like the Falcon. And um, that is my username across all social media. Uh, and you can find my online shop on Etsy at Peregrine Woodshop. Um, find your anxiety fidgets and your houseplant accessories and whatever else might strike your fancy on my shop. Awesome. Terry, thank you. I need to grab one of those. Thank you so I need much. To grab one of those fidget guys. 
that needs to happen. My little, my little ADHD anxiety, you know. To join the amazing community of makers in the making app, head to themakingapp.com to download and sign up or head to your favorite app store and search making. You can listen to the making conversation podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, we'd love for you to subscribe and share with your friends. But also, did you know that you can listen to the Making Conversation podcast in the Making app? Open up the Making app and click Discover. Scroll down to Podcasts and you'll see all current and past podcasts listed there. You can listen while you scroll the feed, post details in a project, search through the marketplace, or even just have it out while you're working on your favorite whip. If you've made it this far and you're interested in sponsoring Making Conversation, send us a note at hq at makingco.com and we'll be in touch. As always, thanks for listening and we'll see you in the making app.